You're listening to the N2K Space Network. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Welcome to T-Minus Deep Space from N2K Networks. I'm Alice Carruth, producer of the T-Minus Space Daily Podcast. Deep Space includes extended interviews and bonus content for a deeper look into some of the topics we cover on our daily program. Through cutting-edge technologies and collaborative partnerships, Skywara is reshaping the landscape of space exploration and positioning Scotland as a key player in the global space industry. Join us as we discuss Skywara with their Head of Business Development. My name is Derek Harris. I'm the Business Operations Manager for Skyrora and CEO of Ecoscene. We started roughly about six years ago and we are a small launch company. So we are looking to launch small satellites up to 315 kilograms into low Earth orbits for sun-synchronous and polar from Scotland up in Saxavord. Some of the things you might have seen in recent times is we have had a suborbital, a lot of suborbital attempts for smaller vehicles, the largest being last year uh, that we launched actually from Iceland, which was a good adventure. That's amazing. So you guys are working on sovereign launch capability in the UK. Can you tell us a bit about that process? Because the UK is not new to space. It's been one of the largest satellite suppliers for a long time, but launch is certainly something, a new process that's come over to the country. Certainly. Well, it, it is a new process, but it's also an archaic one. And if I'm being a bit nice that way. So uh, the UK actually did have a launch program back in the 1950s and 60s. So uh, those rocketry experts out there will be sort of citing the Blue Street, Black Knight projects and, of course, Black Arrow uh, for that, which flew from Wimmera in 1971 for the Prospero mission. But after that, what wasn't well known uh, to probably younger people in the generations is it was cancelled to being a space-faring nation and then to scrap it. We are the only country to do that, which is just unbelievable. Imagine taking all that data, throwing it in a skip and setting it on fire and having to start from scratch. That's really what happened. Thankfully, there are some documents that survived due to some of the engineers 
uh, engineers don't like to get rid of their work so easily. So when we brought Black Arrow back uh, from Australia, we donated that and some of the paperwork to the Farnborough Air and Space uh, Transportation Museum. So please go and see it down there. But from scratch, really, I've now been with the company coming on six years. When we started out, there was four or five of us in a room. Uh, and it was basically building up departments. So to start with highlighting who we wanted to help with their engines, who we wanted to build. So the bringing in of Dr. J.J. Marlowe from Kingston University. Uh, he was a professor down there. We've brought him in to head up our engineering here. We brought in talent from Dnipro in the Ukraine. Uh, they were, for those who may not know, Dnipro is the rocket city and has such a huge pedigree when it comes to anything space, especially engines and tanks, uh, and actually ran most of the Soviet missions. And that's why we're seeing a big slowdown, not just because the sanctions on Russia, but also a lot of people still get their parts and engine capabilities from there. So it's had a huge knock-on effect to the space sector, the war that's going on at the moment. For us, we've been quite lucky because we, our team and any key members we had from there were already sort of brought across to work with our UK team and to do that knowledge transfer. So... Six years ago, from four people in a room, the first two years really was hard uh, marketing and hiring. So marketing the company to get the name out there, hiring to get the right people in. So as I said, Dr. J.J. Marlowe being key there, who bringing up. Then from there, we've opened up the largest test engine test site in the UK, uh, which tests our 70 kilonewton engines, which is based just outside of Edinburgh. We now have our production facility out in Cumbernauld, which is roughly about 55,000 square feet, uh, which even at that, it's a large piece of piece of real estate, but it's still a little bit too small for where we want to get to. But uh, small steps to get to where they, we need to be. We've got a bunch of suite of small vehicles, which people may not know. So we started off with what was called Skylark Nano, roughly about a two meter tall, which similar to the rockets that you may see in and about local competitions. We went to Skylark Micro, which we launched from Iceland, which are similar, about four metres tall. And these are the sort of things you would see at the Spaceport America competitions that we've spoken about previously. We have Sky High, which is a hybrid, which is still currently uh, on pause, so we can find somewhere to do it. And then we had Skylark L, which is our second largest. So at 11 metres long, that was what we launched attempt from Iceland last year in October. And I have to say, managing to get a launch attempt out of Iceland, almost a mile or two south of the Arctic Circle in October, uh, I can't say how well the team did to do that. So that brings us on to our next SKL launch, which we're hoping to be within the next few months uh, to beginning of Q2 next year. And then obviously on to the main launch facility in the XL vehicle. And that will be at Saxaford Spaceport in Scotland, am I correct? How much have you had to do to help make sure that the process is ready for you to be able to launch out of the UK? That's been a big, big thing. In six years, it's been very, very progressive and a lot of help on all sides. So when I say help, I mean discussions back and forward with the spaceport and ourselves over requirements, the normal things you would expect from a launch company in a spaceport. 
But it goes deeper than that. It goes down to health and safety. It goes down to government and regulations. And even goes down, the biggest one for us, I would say, is the environmental aspect for the launch site. So I know the, there was huge amount of interaction with the public around us for, to make sure that Scotland's a very beautiful country and we want to remain that way, but we also want to be a space nation. Uh, so every single part of the journey has had that interaction, whether it be with the local local community, whether it be with nature, historic Scotland, governmental levels. So there's been a huge amount of conversations over the last sort of six years uh, from launchers, from launch sites, insurance companies, government ministers. It's, it's been a long journey and it's we're hopefully going to come to the fruition in the very near future. So obviously the UK held its first space launch back in January of this year, uh, which was a horizontal launch, slightly different to what you guys are going to do. Is the policy already in place for you to be able to do a vertical launch from Scotland or is that still being written as you guys develop your rocket? Very much. It's in place and uh, the licensing requirements are in place as well. So both spaceports and ourselves are going through those. I think the only thing that slowed that down, to be honest, was with COVID because a lot of the staff had to be reallocated to help deal with that. But now that they're back, our case manager and the team down at the Civil Aviation Authority have been wonderful. It's that collaboration that I was speaking about earlier, talking back and forward. We know horizontal is different from vertical launch and there there will be some different challenges from what they've had to sort of do to for passing that license so having those open channels of communications has been great to do so but we we believe we're not far away from having that license the spaceports are in the same boat in that regard which means really the tech is almost there and almost built and ready to go so it's it's as i said it's a nearly coming to fruition for the whole sector We'll be right back after this quick break. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. So you guys have been 
how do I put this, coined as being the new additive manufacturing company. Can you explain to me what it is that you guys are doing at Skyrora in that manner? Yeah, so a large part of when we started out was realising there was not a fully functional supply chain in the UK and Europe that would help for launch. So when you look at things, either you were ordering from the US or individual people, and one of the largest parts that we looked at was our engines. And to do these by hand and things like this would have cost a lot of money, taken a lot of time, and there was a lot of shipping. So the whole journey of the life cycle of the engine was just wasn't the best for production-wise, for monetary purposes as well, economically, environmentally, and any processing. So we looked at 3D printing. And this is where we've got that sort of additive manufacturing tag from. So we first off started with what was called Skyprint 1. And Skyprint 1 is very small uh, 3D printer. And it was doing our gas chambers for our engines and was a 3D printer on a robotic arm that allowed us to have sort of the five axis uh, to spin it around, do what we needed to do. But then we decided we wanted to go bigger. And this this is one that always makes me laugh because everyone says they've got the biggest and best. And uh, I think to this day, I, we believe we have the biggest and best 3D printer as uh, the 10th of August, 2023, <laughs> just in case you're listening to this full further down the line. So we've made a 3D printer, which we've named Skyprint 2. I can see a bit of a pattern with this. And what it does is two meters by two meters and allows us, so it can allow us to print larger sections of the engine in one go. This cuts down on the amount of wastage, the time for that. So the powder with the DED printing uh, allows us then to sort of soak up the rest of and hoover up the rest of the powder that's not used so it can be reused again and cutting down on waste. So from an economic point of view, environmental point of view there we're saving a lot but i think the new thing is as well as we've joined recently a consortium of about 13 companies and these 13 companies were looking into buy alloy metallic printing so we're looking to see if we can print uh, two metals at the same time uh, against each other so being able to print our normal engines in inconel and titanium uh, or inconel and copper, for example, for heat purposes and things like this, cutting down on weight, cutting down on costs. So we're really pushing out uh, the barrel uh, on that regards when we come to research uh, around the 3D printing. So I think that's why we've got that tag a little bit. And it's, as I said, the first time I seen it working, I thought the Skyprint 1 was pretty cool with the robotic arm moving about. But now I've seen Skyprint 2 working, but this thing is huge. Literally, the the frame for it has to be easily two, maybe three to four meters tall, about six meters long. It's it's a huge piece of kit, and it's something that's not just going to help us, uh, but we hope to sort of roll out in the future so it can print things like turbine blades for other people and other aviation tasks as well. So it's, it's possibly going to be a business on its own. I would expect. That was going to be my next question. This seems like such incredible technology. It almost feels wrong to keep it to yourselves. How are you going to benefit the rest of the aerospace and aviation industry across the UK with it? 
Yeah, that's a big thing. So we're currently working on the certification with uh, a few different people at the moment. NMIS, for those that don't know, is the National Manufacturers Institute of Scotland, based out of Strathclyde, with Strathclyde University. Uh, and they are helping to get it certified so we can start doing processing for other companies as well. Uh, once we get to that point, what we hope to do is have multiple printers going. So one dedicated for our needs and the rocket engines, but then... Once we have those other ones, we will have a separate company rolling out that will be able to sort of take these contracts on and run from the same sort of facility or a nearby facility. For those people that aren't used to hearing about Scotland being a launch place, what is the advantage of being able to launch from Scotland? Well, I think the the first one you go with would be the geographical for sun-synchronous and polar orbits. It's much easier to gain these orbits going from Shetland. For those who may not know where Shetland is in Scotland, if you look at the top of the map of Scotland, there's normally a box that gets added there. And this is a bit of an annoyance to them, if I'm honest, because it kind of looks like they're nowhere near us. But it's roughly about an hour or so away from the mainland by flight. And if you go north, it really you pass Iceland, Greenland, and there's no not a lot of land up there. So it's a perfect way to get into that those inclinations. So we've got the ge- geography for that. But I think what's also opening it up a lot is we hear a, this message that Glasgow makes the second most amount of satellites outside of the US at the moment. Those small satellites, it comes down to a sort of regulatory purpose. Imagine being able to build, launch, ensure everything all in the same jurisdiction and not have to worry about different ITAR or different regulations. This also gives it a bit of a benefit and a a new game changer for them. So between regulatory, political with that, and obviously it's it's bringing back and it's a different type of space is what I would like to say is you have SpaceX and they've done incredibly well with what they're doing, especially with the most recent attempts of the new vehicle. But Scotland's really trying to do it slightly differently. You're seeing a difference with the environmental approach, trying to be responsible. I like to use that term rather than friendly because until we can get like zero carbon in any lodge, it's always going to be as friendly as we can make it. But there is just a different attitude in Scotland, really, in the UK, seem to be pushing that and leading that and sort of taking it from a grip and thinking, well, it's not building a new industry, but it's taking a new look from a different sort of fresh pair of eyes. And I, th- I think this is really what's attracted a lot of people to do it from Scotland. What's coming up in the next 12 to 18 months with you? I think the biggest one that we'll see coming along will be the SKL2, so Skylark 2 launching attempt. So at the moment, we're talking with the local government for that and talking with Saxavord to see if we can launch from there. We've also opened up conversations again with Iceland, who we previously went with. Uh, So we hope to have that launching, I would say, within the next six months or so. Uh, The static testing of the first stage, uh, the full qualification of our 70 kilonewton engines, these are the main milestones over the next sort of 12 to 16 months. From ourselves, what else could you see? Well, I would just say keep your eyes peeled and watch. We do like to post the videos from time to time on some of the testings and things, uh, but there is a lot uh, in the pipework that hopefully we can announce coming along in the near future. Derek, thank you so much for your time. I'm really excited to see what happens with Skyroar in the next coming months and years. No, thank you very much for inviting me along, Alice. It was a pleasure. Hold up. 
That's it for T-minus Deep Space for August the 19th, 2023. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at space at n2k.com or submit the survey in the show notes. Your feedback ensures we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing space industry. This episode was mixed by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Carr. Our chief intelligence officer is Eric Tillman. And I'm Alice Carruth. Thanks for listening. 